Um, you're going to have to work tonight. I'm going to do uh, my best as I have been preparing um, this week and, and uh, even again tonight, uh, today, to make chapter 17 as clear as possible. We're going to cover some significant ground tonight. Um, and so I, I think it's, uh, you'll, you'll find that it's laid out very clear, but you're going to need a Bible um, and you're going to need to be able to just pay attention and follow because uh, the detail there is, uh, is exquisite. It's so clear. Um, and when you first read it, it's, it's going to sound like, uh, I don't understand, uh, you know, ten heads and horns and all these other things. But when you actually look at it, it is just plain as the nose on your face. So we're going to look at that tonight. But before we do, um, we're, uh, we're going to open in prayer and then, uh, then we're going to sing. Uh, and then, then I'll come and I'll reorient you to the book of Revelation and then we'll dive, uh, dive right in. Um, all right? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we are grateful um, to be able to pray. And we are grateful that we have a copy of your word. And that to the extent that we, um, we rightly divide it, to the extent that we, we read it in context, um, you speak. And to hear your voice is the greatest privilege that a human being could ever have. And Father, we have, uh, we, we have a privilege that, that the unbelieving world doesn't have as believers. Um, all the world is to hear your word. All the world is to, is to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but we no longer have natural minds. We have, we have spiritual understanding. Your Holy Spirit who lives within us, illuminates your truth. There is no new revelation. Um, there is no visions or dreams. There is the work of the Spirit which illuminates, who illuminates, makes clear, makes plain your word that is already written down and fixed. So we thank you for that. And I pray for his ministry tonight, uh, both in preaching and also in hearing and understanding Lord, and then even as we leave this place to, to obey what we've heard. Bless now as uh, we take up our offering for a church family and uh, as we sing. May you be pleased in Jesus' name. Amen. Great blessing from, from studying it. Revelation or the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ is an unveiling and a foretelling of Christ's coming. And in the very first chapter, the first few verses, the Lord tells us that anyone who hears and heeds this letter will be, will be blessed. Now, the, that being so, Revelation seems to be a book that people shy away from or, or approach with, uh, with extremes. Some people shy away from it because it, they say it's too complicated. They don't want to read it. It's got too much symbolism in it. Or pastors will say they don't want to preach from it because it's too, it's too complicated for their people. People don't want anything detailed or complicated. They just want the five ways to bless my life or five ways to fix my marriage or whatever it is. The other extreme is people microscope it to death. And, and um, 
They define every symbolic detail and fill out their end time charts. There's probably enough paper from end time charts and pictures if you stacked it all up to build Trump's border wall. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I mean, literally, if you, if you Google it, you will, you will just see chart after chart after chart. And I think both are wrong approaches. Because God tells us that Revelation is a book to be read and a book to, to be understood. God didn't give us any book in the Bible to, to confuse us. And it might take some additional work uh, because of the symbolism that's there, but all of the Bible is given to be understood. The Bible is His revelation. It's for God to reveal Himself, and the book of Revelation is, is no different. You can't tell me that God punted the ending, that, that he, he made it to where everything else in the Bible is it with such perfect and clarifying detail from creation to salvation, and then the ending doesn't matter, or the ending is too complicated to, to understand. The Bible is authoritative, it is sufficient, and it is clear, and Revelation is no different. So let me remind you where we're at in the flow of the book so we can... So we can jump back in. The book is basically divided into three, three parts. Besides the introduction and the end, they're the things that are. That's what John is seeing. They're the things that shall take place after this. That's the section that we're in, in Revelation 17, and that will continue up through chapter 22. And then there's the things that, that will, will come. All things that are, that are new. The new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth, what we're always what we are all looking forward to. And we have already seen in Revelation chapter 1 this vision of Jesus Christ. We, we heard the message to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. Those were churches, real churches, during John's time. We peered into the very throne room of God, and, and you hear in chapter 4 and chapter 5, where you have that great passage, Weep not, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed he is worthy to, to open the scroll, and you see Jesus receive the title deed of the, of the universe, and then you see the breaking of the seals that's on that scroll, unleashing and revealing what is coming upon the, the earth. So you have the seven seals, and then you have the seventh trumpet that is in the final seal. Chapter 12, we saw the war in heaven between the woman and the child and the dragon being Satan, how Satan wages war. Chapter 13, details about the second half of the tribulation. Chapter 14, the victory of the Lamb is proclaimed. And then chapter 15, John sees this final vision of, of seven great angels holding the bold judgment. So you have seven seals, you have seven trumpets, and then you have these, these seven bowls. And chapter 16... The seven bowls of God's wrath, the vials are, are poured out on the earth. They're, they're unleashed. And chapter 16 ends with all of the armies of the world gathered after the seventh bowl is poured out on the earth. And the only thing that remains is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 19. That's the final battle the, when Christ comes as King of kings and Lord of lords. But before chapter 19 centered between the bold judgments in chapter 16 and this final battle in the coming of Christ, you have chapters 17 and, and 18. And it is a detailed destruction of the Antichrist kingdom that's been built over the, over the tribulation period. 
What I want you to think about is chapter 16 is the pouring out of those, the final judgments, gathering everybody for chapter 19, but chapter 17 and 18 zooms in and shows us the effect of God's bold judgments on the Antichrist, on his religious, and also on his political kingdom. So if you think of the, the book of Revelation in, in, in a chronological way, it stops. The, the time clock stops in chapter 16. It picks back up in chapter 19. In chapter 17 and 18 that we're looking at zooms in on what has been taking place in the bowl, the bowl judgment. So we're not seeing new judgments in the chapter that we're looking at tonight. We're seeing what happens to Satan's kingdom as it falls under God's judgment. And Satan's kingdom has two parts. There's a spiritual kingdom, and then there is a political kingdom or a material kingdom. And in the end, the kingdom of Satan will come under the control of the unholy trinity, as we said. There's the dragon, the beast, that's the Antichrist, and then the false, the false prophet. The dragon, Satan himself. The beast is the Antichrist, and the, the false prophet is the one who, who deceives. He's the one, the false prophet is the one in control of the spiritual kingdom. So chapter 17 is the destruction of the spiritual side of Satan's kingdom. Chapter 18 zooms in on the destruction of the economic and political side of Satan's kingdom. And we're obviously not going to get to chapter 18 tonight. And you don't have to take my word for it. Look, if you would, at Revelation chapter 17, verse 1, because it tells us up front what we're going to see. Revelation 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, there's the connection to the, to the bowl judgments, came and spoke to me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. So John is told to, to come here. Now, we're told in verse 5, look if you at verse 5, we're told who this harlot is. This harlot has a name. The harlot is... Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. The harlot is Babylon the Great, or from Babel, from the Tower of Babel, the mother of all harlots and the mother of the abominations of the, of the earth. And the harlot is a, is a prostitute. Here it's a spiritual one. It's a spiritual prostitute. It, it represents spiritual or false religion that's on the world. And look if you would at verse 15, because we're told exactly what these waters represent. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. What's the waters? Look at verse 15. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. That's repeated over and over in Revelation. This is just individuals, people of the world, all of the world. The harlot sits over them, meaning that they follow her. And so what you have here is the judgment of all false religion. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, is going to be judged, and she has influence over all of the earth. She sits over the waters, which are the people and the tongues and the tribes. And the harlot has mothered many children. That's why she's called a mother. She gave birth to them at the Tower of Babel, where all false religion began. And Satan has spread those false 
teachings and false religions from the Tower of Babel up until this time. He spread those abominations all over the earth, the abominations of the earth. It's found in her name. And that's hard, not hard to, to see even as you're looking around in the world today. I mean, we're not in the tribulation period, and yet Satan is mothering all types of false religions, isn't he? And those false religions reign over nations and over peoples and over tongues. Islam in the Middle East, Hinduism, in India, Buddhism, in, in Asia, Catholicism, in Europe and all over the place, positive thinking, atheism, I mean, you name it. He, Satan does not care how it's packaged. It's just anti-Christ. It's just anti-God. It's some way to climb up to God Outside of yourself. And Revelation 17 says they all come from the same mother and they are all an abomination throughout the earth to the one true and living God. So let's see how Revelation 17, how it all comes together and how God brings it down. This is God's judgment of the world's religion. And we got too fast there. Here's the outline of the whole book. God's religion is disclosed in verses 1 through 6. It's then described in verses 7 through 15 or 14. And then we get to see the destruction in verses 15 through 19. Let's read Revelation 17. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke to me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. We'll learn more about the beast tonight. Full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones, pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things or the filth of her immorality. And on her forehead the name was written, her name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of all harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints." And with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus, when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you a mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. And now John begins to explain. The beast you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And there are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast, which was and is not, is himself also the eighth and is one of the seventh. And he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. 
These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. And He said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose And by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman which you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now last time we saw the world's religions disclosed. We we made it up through verse 6. We saw the harlot's influence. The kings and citizens of the world drink her wine of fornication. They're under her influence, under her spiritual influence. Be not drunk with wine. God already has compared the Holy Spirit with the influence, the intoxicating influence of alcohol. And here he uses that same symbol for the harlot's influence. We saw the harlot's facade. John sees a woman sitting on a beast clothed in in these seductive garments. The beast is the Antichrist and his government. We, We find out later the horns and the heads represent kings and kingdoms and the woman is propped up. This is the unified religion of the world that will be propped up by the Antichrist through his geopolitical power. We saw the harlot's name, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. We saw her hatred. She hates the saints. She drinks their blood. She is from Babel, and she is a murderer. And John sees all of that, and he marvels. He marvels. Look, if you would, at verse 7. The second thing that's revealed is the world's religion is described to us. Look, if you would, at verse 7. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. And John sees the, the wonder over the beast. He wonders at the relationship between the beast and the woman, the harlot. You see the worship of the beast, people worshiping the beast in verses 9 through 11. You see these these ten kingdoms which wage war against the lamb. You see the warriors for the beast. And then you see the victory of the lamb, Jesus Christ, in in verse 14. Now, John wonders here about the relationship between the harlot and the beast. Look at verse 7. The angel said, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman... And of the beast that carries her. John is wondering about the relationship between the harlot and the beast. The woman's already been revealed. She's been described in the first six verses. And what John is wondering about is the relationship between the woman and the beast. The the woman is riding upon the beast. The one world religion and the world powers led by the Antichrist. And the rest of the chapter describes their, their relationship. It focuses on... On the beast. Look at verse 8. The beast that you saw. So there's the woman, and then there's the beast. And John's trying to figure out how they relate. There is this spiritual uh, false religion, the world's religion, and it is propped up by this, this vision of the beast 
And John can't figure out exactly how they, how they relate. But there's also some other wondering going on. Look, if you would, at verse 8. The angel begins to describe to John, the beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to come up out of the abyssos, out of the abyss, and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast. What are they wondering about? What will they marvel over? That he was and is not and will come. Now, the beast has already been revealed to us. I want you to turn back to Revelation 13. It's the only time I'm going to ask you to turn tonight. But you're going to see that this is a direct parallel of something that John's already already seen. Revelation 13, then verse 1. Then I saw a beast. So the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and his horns were ten diadems. You see this beast, and you see this all this symbolic description of this, of this beast. He's like a leopard, and he's like a bear. Remember, it's all symbolic, like, like, like. And the dragon, that's Satan, gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now look at verse 3. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? You have a picture here of a beast who's described with horns and heads, meaning kings and kingdoms. And one of his heads is wounded. It's as if it's been slain, and then it's healed. And the whole earth is amazed. Because whatever happens looks like the beast is knocked out. It looks like the, one of his head dies. And then it comes back to life. And the whole earth is amazed by that and follows the beast and worships the beast. And this mystery, John marvels at. A mystery is something that's not yet been revealed. But it's about to be revealed. And what's being revealed is the relationship between the woman and the beast. Turn back to Revelation 17. The woman has children, and the woman, woman is riding on this beast. And the angel says this beast will first carry her. You see that? The woman riding on the beast. It's meaning he's going to support her. But then something is going to happen which will change everything. And that's what's described in Revelation 13, verse 3, with this wounding of the head and the healing of the head. One of his heads is wounded as if it had been slain, and then it was healed, and the whole earth wonders and is amazed. And that's exactly what's described here in verse 8. Look, if you would, at verse 8 of Revelation 17. The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss. 
He was, meaning alive, and then he is not, meaning dead or a wound that makes him look dead. And then he comes up out of the abyss, meaning like a fake resurrection of some kind. But his end is destruction. His end is perdition. That's the word for like the lake of fire. And that's the wound that was healed in Revelation 13. And the whole earth is amazed by this, by this pseudo-resurrection, this, this miracle, the seeming miracle, whatever it is going to be. And this is the turning point of the tribulation period. It's when the Antichrist will demand to be, be worshipped. It's when the abomination of desolation will be set up in the temple. It's when Israel will turn away and when the final battle will be set up. And while the beast will support the harlot as, as all of the world's religions are coming together in the first part of the tribulation period, there will be two systems during the first half. There's going to be a religious, religious one and a political one. The Antichrist is then going to turn on this religious system and demand to be worshipped himself. That's what's described in verse 16. Look at verse 16, if you would. I told you you had to work tonight. The ten horns that you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her with fire. Wait a minute. The harlot was riding on the beast. The harlot is the one world religion that's being supported by the, by the beast, by the Antichrist, by his political system. And yet now that same beast and that, those same kingdoms are going to turn on the harlot, those religious systems, and, and she's going to be devoured. Why? Well, that's what's being described here. What's the trigger point? That's what's being described here. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss. And, and chapter 13 tells us exactly what's happened. There's a wound that's healed. What triggers this is the pseudo-miracle that's going to deceive the world. And from that time, they're no longer just going to follow the Antichrist as a world political leader, but they're going to follow him as God. He's no longer going to share worship with the religious system. And God says He's going to deceive everyone at that time except the elect. You would at verse 8. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast. And what are they going to wonder at? That he was and is and will, will come. Those that dwell on the earth are going to be deceived by this pseudo-miracle, this wounding and healing that's going to trigger the beast to turn on the, the false prophet, the Antichrist to turn on the religious system. I'm not going to have you turn there, but you could... This is exactly what's also said in Revelation 13.8. All who dwell on the earth... We'll worship Him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Revelation 13 is a mirror of what's going on here. And you don't have to uh, worry about just Revelation teaching this. It's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, we're going to be in these passages in Mark pretty soon, but Matthew 24 is the, is the Olivet Discourse, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise 
and they're going to show great signs and great wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect, meaning that it's not possible. But they're going to be so deluding, so strong, that the entire earth is going to be deceived by these miracles. And two verses earlier in verse 22, Jesus says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And we're about to get to those passages in Mark, but Jesus is describing the tribulation in the second coming of Christ. Jesus is saying the deluding works of the Antichrist. He's saying the same thing the angel's saying in chapter 17. The deluding works of the Antichrist will be so powerful that unless God had protected his own, they would fall to them. And he's also saying that the Antichrist's time that he gets to terrorize the world and God's people is fixed. Aren't you glad about that? It's fixed. God has cut it short, meaning he's put a beginning and an end to it. It'll be seven years, be three and a half in what we're coming into. And if it wasn't fixed, his devastation would be so great that no one would survive. Now, let me just say a a word of exhortation to you. Don't get caught up in the spokes of all the emotional arguments about the elect and will and all of that and neglect these passages. Because these are meant for a huge, huge blessing to you. When God talks about the elect in the Bible, the ones that he has chosen, he's speaking to believers and always for encouragement. It's, It's some aspect of encouragement There's no passage that talks about elect unbelievers. It's always to believers. It's always to those that God has chosen. And it's always applied to God's people. And it's always to be a reminder of his commitment to his own people. And you can see that right here. There's going to be this deluding influence. And God's commitment is to his own people. He will protect them. And God reminds his people that he loved them and knew them even before the world was. And he invokes this term when he wants to remind us that he won't forsake us. It's like saying, if I chose you in eternity past, purpose to save you in Christ, wrote your name down and in the book of life before the foundation of the world, do you think I'm going to let you go now? That's what he's saying when, he's, when, he, when, he, when he invokes these, these terms. Do you think that I'll forsake you in this trial? Do you think I'll forsake you in tribulation? Of course not. I'll keep you. I'll continue the good work that I began in you. I'll come again for you. And I'll preserve you even through the delusions that will come at the end. But the whole world will worship the beast. Look, if you would, at verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. Now, that's an interesting way to begin what comes next. What comes next is seven heads and seven mountains and a woman and a king and five have fallen. It's like the angel saying, uh, what's coming next is a, is a little complicated. This is the mind which has wisdom. Pay attention. I'm going to break this down for you. It's like what he's saying. And the angel goes into specific detail about the kingdoms of the Antichrist, the ones who have worshipped the beast throughout time. Now, remember, this is symbolism, and symbolism represents something. So don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. He says there's 
seven heads and seven mountains. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. We already know who the woman is. We already know what sitting means. It means to be propped up. And verse 10 says, and they are seven kings. I mean, it defines for us. We're told exactly what this represents. We already know the woman is the unified religious system propped up by or riding on the back of the political powers of these kingdoms. And the heads of the mountains all refer to these rulers, their countries, their kingdoms. And now he says in verse 10, of these kingdoms that have propped up the false religion, five have fallen. I'm reading in verse 10. The other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. So of these kingdoms, he says there's seven that have propped up world religions. Five of them have come and gone. You see that? Five have fallen. They're not there any longer. One is. One is in power right now. And when is John writing? Who's in power? Rome. And one, the other, has yet to come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. So this one that's yet to come is only going to be in existence for a very short period of time. And look at verse 11. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven. And then is the, the ending, the, he goes to destruction. It's where he always goes. So what does this mean? There's seven kingdoms, five have come, one is, we know the one is, it's Rome, there's one that's coming, and when it comes, it's only going to be there for a little while, and the beast is part of the seventh, and the beast is the eighth. And you say, that sounds a little complicated. Well, let me try to help you. The John basically says here there's going to be eight kingdoms in the world, that false religion rides on. And Daniel chapter 2, verse 37, gives us, gives us a, a depiction of four of them. They're Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And we know that John represents Rome, one of them right here. It's the one that is. You remember Daniel's vision that he saw, that, that great image. Head was of gold and the upper part was silver, the bronze or the mid, was midsection, steel or iron legs, and then iron and clay mixed in the feet. There's this idea of descending weakness. Stronger metals on the top, and it gets weaker as they, as they go along. And Daniel is writing at a specific time. He's, he's dated as well, and so he gives us four of the kingdoms. You follow me so far? Prior to Daniel, there are two other kingdoms, and that is Egypt and Assyria. Now, I realize that there are, these are not the only kingdoms that have ever lived in the world, not only the great empires. I just saw something, I don't know, two weeks ago, where they're using this very fascinating uh, uh, laser imaging. It's like GPS, but, they, but they, they apply it to the earth, and they're able to see all of the topography and everything that's there under the trees, under the canopies. And they were talking about how the Incan Empire, which they thought was kind of small, is actually 
massive, literally millions of, of people that live there. Now they're able to see this. Of course, you couldn't see it because of the jungle and everywhere I do not think that what God is saying here, these are, there's only eight world powers that have ever existed. But these are eight that have propped up false religion throughout time. Egypt, Assyria, and then you move into the four of Daniel, Rome, and then there's two more that, that come. Listen to what Henry Morris writes. These are the major kingdoms that have opposed God's people and God's words. Though none of these empires actually ruled the whole globe, each was the greatest kingdom of its time, particularly in reference to the land and the people of Israel. In these kingdoms' opposition to the proclamation of God's word and the accomplishment of his purposes in the world. There were other great and powerful empires in the ancient world, China, India, and the Incas, for example. But these had only peripheral contact with the word of God and the chosen people. There were only six kingdoms that met both of those criteria up from to the time of Christ and the apostles. And John says, five have fallen, past tense. There's one that is, that is Rome. John is on Patmos as a prisoner from Rome. And then there's another that is yet to come. I don't know what happened there. It's supposed to be six and, and seven. I can actually count. But look, if you would, at verse... 10. I'm sorry, verse 11. The beast, which was and is, is himself also the eighth and the seventh. And verse 10 says, when he comes, that's the seventh kingdom, that's the one with the harlot and the beast sharing power, the harlot's riding on the beast, that kingdom is only going to remain for a little while, the first three and a half years. You see what it says there? He must remain a little while. And then it's going to come to the eighth kingdom. The beast which was and is not himself is also the eighth and is one of the seventh. He's part of that seventh kingdom. When the Antichrist and the beast both reign, that kingdom will be the world political system and the world religious system mingled together. That's the first three and a half years. And then in the eighth comes the beast alone. He devours the harlot, brings down the religious system, and rules himself. The beast which was and is not, in verse 11, the wound or the, the fake resurrection. And then he rises as the single ruler over both religion and politics, and he becomes the eighth kingdom. That's how he's part of the seventh and also part of the eighth. And yet his final place will be like all of the other prior rulers of the world or prior kingdoms who reject God. And so verse 11 says, and he goes to destruction. And he ends up in the lake of, of fire. But before he does that, he's going to be supported by an army. Here's the warriors of the beast. Look, if you would, at verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast, 
for one hour, meaning a small period of time. They're not major kingdoms. They receive their authority as kings with the beast. They're going to rule under the beast. They'll be subservient to him. And in verse 13, these have one purpose or one mind. They give their power and authority to the beast. And they have one purpose. They will wage war against the Lamb. These will be the armies of the world, subservient to the Antichrist, and they'll wage war against the Lamb. Do you see that? Very plain. But here's a spoiler alert. Jesus wins. Amen? Verse 14. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called, are the called and chosen and faithful. This is a preview of chapter 19. Remember, chapter 16 is the bold judgments. We're zooming in. The destruction of the, of the spiritual power, the destruction of the political power is coming next. And now here we have a preview of chapter 19. Now I want you to notice, the Lamb wins the battle, not because of the army that's with Him, or any kings, or anything else. Notice what it says here. The Lamb will overcome them because He is King of kings and Lord of lords, or Lord of lords and King of kings. He wins the battle not because of an army, but because He is who He is. That's how He's going to win. He's not going to lift a finger. And you'll see that in chapter 19. But notice there's somebody with this Lord of lords and King of kings that's coming. And those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. Now, who's that? Amen. That's exactly right. And you say, well, maybe it's angels. Maybe there's the warring angels that's going to come with Jesus. Well, you'd be right to say there, to to use that, to use that, uh, that second term there, the elect. There's elect angels. Well, angels are called elect. But angels are not called. That first word that's used there is never used for angels. God's angels are elect, but they're not called. That's us. That's the redeemed. We are called, chosen, and faithful. Elect, called during life, and then there's us responding in saving faith. And we'll be with the Lamb, whenever He comes. But there's one final scene. One final scene. And it is the final piece that John sees. The world religion is destroyed. I've already read it to you, but there's some things I want you to pay attention to here. There's the harlot's treacherous fall, and then there's God's purposeful fulfillment. Look at verse 15. And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And I told you that's used in Revelation in another place. There's going to be the redeemed, those who worship the Lamb from every people, multitude, nation, and tongue. 
because God's going to save people from out of the earth. And the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns, that's the, the ten kings. These are the subservient kings. The ten horns which you saw and the beast, that's the Antichrist, who has, who was and is and comes up out of the abyss. He's wounded in some way. The pseudo-miracle, after that takes place, what you're reading right here takes place. The ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate. They will um, turn on her. They'll make her desolate and naked. They'll take away her power and her influence. And then they'll eat her flesh and burn her up, meaning they'll utterly destroy her. That one religion that was supported is now devoured in treachery. And one of the things that you really need to know about Satan is he does not play by the rules. And he does not care if he tells you a lie and you believe it. And whenever he comes and promises you something, it's always to use you for his own purpose. And that's exactly what he does with the world religions. And you can see all of that coming together now. I'm not implying that we're in the, we're in the, you know, the days right before it happens. I don't know when it's going to happen, neither do you, but it's going to happen. And you can see all of the syncretism and you can see the, we are not becoming less religious, we're becoming more religious. Don't think atheism is going to reign. Atheism is not going to reign. Religion is going to reign. But it's going to be empty religion. Doctrine is what divides. People don't care if you're a religious person or a spiritual person. They only care if you define what you mean by that. You understand what I'm saying? They don't care if you worship Jesus just as long as there are many other ways. They don't care if you worship Jesus unless you say that Jesus is the only way to God and that he is God alone. And you see that playing out in Catholicism and Orthodoxy and Islam and everything coming together, and they're tearing away at the doctrines, what people believe. And the spirituality is what is reigning. And Satan will continue that and will increase that till they'll all come together and they'll merge together in this one religious amalgam. And it will be supported and propped up by the, by the world. And you can see that playing out even now. There are political powers that, that prop up religious systems. And you can see persecution that comes against the one true God and his people, the, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this one amalgam is going to be propped up until Satan is done using her when all of the religions bring everybody away from God and together. And then it will be time where he will no longer want whoever or whatever worshipped other name, he will want to be worshipped himself because that's been Satan's goal from the beginning, right? His goal from the beginning is I want to ascend above the Most High. 
I want to be like God. He'll strip away all the veneer. He'll destroy whatever religious systems are out there. And he will declare, I am God, and you will worship me, and you will worship me alone. And that's exactly what is described here. The Antichrist and the subservient kingdoms will turn. and He'll come to power by supporting all the world religions, and these world religions will have influence over nations and peoples and tongues. And then in the, after three and a half years of gathering the whole world and cooperating with world religions, the Antichrist will desire to be ruler over all and be worshipped himself. And so he will turn on the religious system and destroy it. But that does not mean that will be the end of religion. It means that all the religion will now be focused on worshiping Satan and the Antichrist himself. And why does all of this happen? Why does this ultimately take place? I understand the motives of Satan. I understand the, the, the decisions and the will of the individuals that are making these decisions to follow and the kings, but look at you at verse 17. You're going to eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For, explanation, for God has put it in their hearts to execute His purpose, or literally His mind, by having come a common, by having a common purpose, and by giving their kingdom to the beast. Until the word of God will be fulfilled. Who's in control? Uh, it's not the world religious rulers. <laughs> it's not the wicked kings. It's not the one, the ten horns or the twenty horns. It's not the Antichrist. It's not even Satan. It's God himself. And the end will not deviate one ounce from the Lord's sovereign plan. And it will not rise one second before... And it will not last one moment longer. And it will happen exactly as God has purposed. And He has told us beforehand exactly how it's going to unfold. Who are their names? What countries? What kingdoms? I have no idea. God does. But He tells us the kingdoms are going to come together and they're going to be under this power. And in chapter 18... We're going to see how he destroys the political kingdoms of the end.